For those who uh, know me, I can tell you that my greatest fear is uh, to look foolish, is to look dumb. And um, when you begin to preach about the cross, actually, you're supposed to look foolish because the preaching of the cross is foolishness uh, to the world. So I ask that, you know, Arlene uh, prayed for me and, and my message today, but have you ever prayed uh, to be the biggest fool in the room? To be the biggest fool because to be a fool means that you could be a fool for Christ. And that's what my desire is to do today, especially in talking about what we're going to talk about today. The cross. Uh, you know, we spend at least once a year thinking about it. If I had told you that we'd spend two or three weeks talking about just this one event, just this narrative that you find uh, in all four Gospels, did you think there'd be enough material? Did you think that we would find something new? By the way, one of the desires of every preacher is to come up with something new for you. That way you won't think I'm a fool, you know. But were we supposed to find something new every time we come to the cross? It's arguably the greatest event in all human history. I think it deserves a couple of Sabbaths, don't you? And John gives us a unique perspective, a unique perspective on the cross. And that's why we're taking some time to set this aside so that John can reveal things to us that maybe we missed in the other gospels or that the other gospel writers didn't have at their disposal. John giving us his unique perspective. So you remember from last week, Jesus has been religiously convicted by a religious trial and secularly convicted by a secular trial. He was convicted in the religious trial of being a false prophet. And somehow, they got Pilate to care about that, because normally a Roman governor would not care about a religious argument, but they framed it in such a way that they got Pilate to care about it, and they actually convinced Pilate that he deserves crucifixion, that he deserves the cross. To be cursed is what they wanted. Remember, the law states specifically that anybody who hangs on a tree is cursed by God. This is what they wanted everyone to believe, not only to thwart Jesus himself in his last hours or minutes on earth, but also to thwart the message that his followers would put forward that he still was and is the Son of God, the Holy One of God. So this is exactly what they wanted. But we also know that Jesus predicted it. No matter what uh, happened uh, as far as the humans that were calling the shots in this drama, Jesus had predicted it. Remember he said, and just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. So I look at cross, the cross today, first to begin with, as an idol. Because the cross and the serpent in the wilderness have a lot in common. A lot in common. They both do. They're both symbols of suffering. They both are called upon to be objects of faith. The serpent freed Israel from certain death. The cross frees anyone who would believe from certain death. And they both became idols. Really? Sure. How much easier is it to idolize something than to exercise true faith? How much easier would it have been for Israel to be able to idolize the serpent 
That serpent exists for centuries after it happens. It has its own little place in the temple. It takes a king to destroy it. But after it's destroyed, would you be able to still have the faith that the serpent promised? Can we do it with the cross? Think of the cross today. Has the cross become an idol in the church? I had a professor who once said, uh, if he always wondered if more people had gotten on the ark, today would we be wearing arcs in our ears and arcs around our neck? We found a way, didn't we? We as Christians, we found a way no matter how. And, and, and even the fight over whether or not a cross should be in the church or on the platform or anything else, isn't that an idolizing fight? We've made it important enough to argue about. To me, that's the definition of a believer's idol. So most of the narrative in the cross is unique to John. Very little is found in the other gospels that you find in John. In fact, what was done after Jesus died, you don't find in any of the others. What happens to his body and how it's cared for, you don't find in any of the other gospels. And we're gonna find out why in just a bit because John has a perspective that they don't. John even had this perspective back then. Not just that he lived and heard other stories, he actually witnessed something that the others did not. So we know that after uh, Pilate had this argument with them that he orders the crucifixion. They handed him over to be crucified. They took Jesus, carrying the cross by himself. He went out to what is called the place of the skull, which in Hebrew is Golgotha. There they crucified him with two others, one on either side with Jesus in between. I used to spend a lot of time on the physical aspects, the anatomy, the physiology, and everything that goes on with crucifixion. I don't anymore, and I'll, maybe I'll, I'll touch on that. But the Romans didn't invent crucifixion. The Phoenicians did, centuries and centuries before. The Phoenicians were the first to find out that if you hung a person by their shoulders, the weight would be too much eventually to breathe against, and actually they would suffocate. They'd usually suffocate within hours. So the Romans didn't invent it, but as with other things, the Roman perfected it. Not as a source of execution, but as one of shame and abject humiliation. Number one, John tells us they were required, you were required to carry your cross. They put it on you. From the second that you were sentenced and handed the cross, your humiliation began, because everybody knew what that meant. Everybody knew what that meant in order to have to carry it. It was done in public as warning to others. It was not done in private. You were taken along a road. You were crucified by a road, a main highway. You either nailed or tied with ropes. Death did come by suffocation, but also death could come from uh, bleeding to death, or you could actually die from parasitic infestation. Because I have to tell you, the Romans had perfected it to the point where you could be up there for a month or more. If you were, they would come and feed you. Because the more shame, the more humiliation, the better it is for Rome. This is what happens right here. Look, this is what happens when you mess with the emperor. They wanted it to last as long as possible. 
which is why when we get to the point, breaking legs could hasten death because what the person would do would lift themselves up with their legs, lift themselves up with their arm, and the pain would be excruciating simply to breathe. And depending on how strong they were before they were nailed to the cross, which some weren't at all, they could live for an hour, they could live for a long time. In fact, Jesus dying after only three hours is shocking, actually, to Pilate. Remember, when they go to ask for his body, he doesn't believe he's dead. He says, go out and tell me what happened. It was too soon. But also breaking the legs. If they didn't die, if, if, if you didn't die before sundown, before they wanted to take you down, then that meant, too, that they could toss you back up there after sundown with your broken legs. They had no problem doing that whatsoever. So Pilate puts Jesus' sentence upon the cross itself. He has an inscription made. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Remember the last thing that he says to the people is, behold, your king. And that, to me, that's what incensed them right there. Pilate knew exactly what he was saying. This is your king, behold. They couldn't take that. And they fell right into Pilate's trap after that. Because remember, what did they announce? We have no king but who? We have no king but Caesar. So many of the Jews read this inscription because the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. It was written in Hebrew, in Latin, and in Greek. But the chief priest objected. They said, do not write that he was the king of the Jews. This man said, but write, this man said, I'm the king of the Jews. And what was Pilate's answer? What I have written, I have written. Welcome to the new Pilate. These guys got nothing on him anymore. He's got them exactly where they want them. They proclaimed publicly that they have no king but Caesar. Pilate's got them now, doesn't he? Remember the political trouble we talked about that he was in last week? He's not in it anymore. Notice he writes it in the three languages of the empire. Aramaic was for the people living in the east. Greek was for the people living in the west. Latin was the official language of decree. The cross, the scene, the words, they all strike a blow to the Jews, but a message to all is he's declared himself king. And he dismisses their objections now. They have nothing on him. Nothing. But hold on. Hold on. Because you could fool yourself into now thinking that Pilate now, with all this brand new political power, that he actually could have been kind of in charge, right? John won't let us stay there. He lets us, he lets us reflect a little bit in Rome's brand new power, especially in this particular case. But then he says this. Then he goes on with a narrative and says, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his clothes and divided them into four parts, one for each soldier. They took also his tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from the top. John says, if you're going to marvel at Pilate's new political power and is in his power in the empire, hold on a second. Hold on a second. Because the soldiers cast lots. And why did they do that? He tells them immediately that this is what the soldiers had done. And then he says why they had done that. That's why the soldiers did it. Meanwhile, near the cross, it says, uh, wait a minute. Ooh, I'm sorry. Oh, 
I didn't have that verse. That's what messed me up. So they said, um, they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for us to see who will get it. This was to fulfill what the scripture said. They divided my clothes among themselves, and for my clothing they cast lots. As soon as you think that Pilate may have had some sort of control here, John then reminds you why this is happening. It's because it was prophesied. Prophesied by who? By Jesus. He's still in charge. And what's amazing is that this particular prophecy includes parties, includes people who don't even know that they're fulfilling prophecy. These soldiers. I'm sorry not having that slide up. They really missed me making my point, but I hope I made it. Hope I made it. Notice John doesn't describe a lot of things that we hear. He doesn't describe the darkness of the day. He doesn't inscribe the mockery of the religious leaders at the cross. John's interest is that we understand that Jesus' death is voluntary and purposeful. He has something to finish today. He has something to do. He has something to finish. Dr. Pauline tells us again in his Bible Amplifier series on John, he says, he highlights the fact that the soldiers' actions were an amazing, exact fulfillment of prophecy on the part of people who were in no way knowing, knowing what they were doing. This is beyond the shot calling humans control. He's not here because Pilate called the shots. He isn't here because the religious leaders called the shots. He isn't here because the people called the shots. He's here because he's in charge. I lay down my life and I have the power to pick it back up again. Another interesting perspective that you hear with John that you don't hear anywhere else is that he gives us a breakdown of who is there. Meanwhile, standing near the cross of Jesus were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. You have to understand that in Greek, there is no punctuation. So depending on your translation, depends on the punctuation that's putting up there. It's a list of women, is it not? It's a list of women, but depending on where you put the commas, you could translate this in several ways. And it's difficult, it's difficult to translate. Why am I gonna spend time on this? Hang, hang with me for just a second. Why am I gonna spend time on this, okay? First, the way to interpret this list is that listing them, naming them, would mean that Mary was Mary of Clopas and Magdalene was the sister. That's not natural, is it? It's not the natural the way it reads. But you could do it with commas in English, can't you? All right. The other is, is that Jesus' mother and sister, who is uh, Mary, the wife of Clopas, that would mean that Mary had a sister named Mary, which probably isn't likely either, is it? Okay. But there is a more natural way of reading it, if you can hang with me just here. I'm not saying that this is definite, but this certainly is a possibility. Are you with me? I did not have a dream. This is not a vision. Dr. Pauline didn't have a dream or a vision, okay? But look at the list. It could be that it's two pairs of women, that it's four women, actually. One is named, and the other one is unnamed, as far as the pair. You get what I'm saying? That there are four women here. And the reason we do is that you go to the other Gospels, you go to Matthew and Mark, they have the same list. 
but they help us out just a little bit more. So mother, mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, Mary Magdalene, how many women? Four, okay? In Matthew, it says, among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. There were all, and in Mark, it says, there were also women looking on from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger, and Joseph, and Salome. So, compared to the list of the of the four over here, what if it's his mother Mary, we know that one, right? What if it's his mother's sister or the mother of the sons of Zebedee, named who? Named Salome. Mary, the wife of Clopas, could be the Mary, mother of James and Joseph, and Mary Magdalene is actually the only one who's named first and titled. If Mary's sister was Salome, the mother of James and John, that would make Jesus and John what? Cousins. First cousins. All from Galilee and Nazareth. That would mean that John already had, before he even met him, a relationship with him. And that just might account for some of the things that John knows about Jesus that the other gospel writers doesn't seem to know. It could be an insight that what he gets. Why does he include that? Why does he include this list? It's because, about what, it's because it's about for what's about to happen next. Because the next thing he reports happens with Jesus actually hanging on the cross is something that you wouldn't expect to happen during a crucifixion. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing beside her, he said to his mother, woman, here is your son. Or behold, your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold, here is your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. John may have been explaining to us why John was the one that was picked to do this. Because legally, he, he also has maybe a legal obligation in order to do so. If they're blood relatives, then uh, Mary needs sponsorship, if you will, under the law. I don't have a lot of time with this, but apparently, apparently sometime between Jesus' birth and now, her, her husband has died. Joseph has died. Otherwise, Jesus wouldn't have to do anything here. But Jesus is, di Jesus is dying, he knows that he is, so he's gonna take care of his mother. See, because the law, again, does not provide for a woman to inherit anything. You with me? If your husband dies, you have to have a son who is going to give you the land and take care of you in that home. Or you could go back to your father. Chances are your father's not living given the mortality of the day, if you will. So maybe John is trying to let us know this is why this happened. So there's two reasons of why John may have this. He has a, he has a unique insight. He's the closest. And you know what gets, me to, what gets me about a true disciple of Jesus like John is, you know what I would do with that information? If I'm fighting with Peter as to who is the greatest, wouldn't I bring that up every time? I'm his cousin, dude. 
Yet John, when he writes the gospel, he can't even come to name himself in that privilege. Back in chapter 13, one of his disciples, the one whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. John can't even come out to say it. He's not gonna use it as an advantage. Because by the way, he knows what we would do with that, wouldn't we? All of a sudden now, we would give John's witness more credence, more power. It would cause more divisions in the church. I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos. Hey, I'm of John because John was his cousin. We would find a way to do what with it? Almost get to the point to maybe even idolize him. And John won't have it. John won't have it. There's a humility that the years have brought to him by the time he gets to write this down. He won't even name himself that way. But he does want you to know why it was that he took him into his home, he, that he took Mary into his home. So John tells us, he just says, he who saw this has testified that you also may believe. He said, I was there. I just want you to know that I was there and I've been there forever and this is my testimony to you because I want you to believe. And I don't want you to believe me because I'm his cousin. I don't want you to believe me because I have some sort of specific special insight. I want you to believe him, not me. John the Baptist had a way of doing that too, didn't he? He must increase. I must decrease. So the narrative also functions again to show the magnificent selflessness of Jesus hanging here. Don't you think that Jesus would be given just a little bit of room, just a little bit of credit? He is hanging on the cross. Wouldn't we give him some credit for not remembering to take care of his mom? of not remembering to take care of John. Wouldn't we? We would, but Jesus won't. Behold your son. He even uses the language, behold your son, behold your mother. The last two times that behold was held, that behold was said was that it was in the lips of Pilate when he carries, when he brings Jesus out in the crown of thorns and he says, behold the man, the son of man, if you will, behold the king of the Jews. And then just before the crucifixion, he brings him out again and says, behold your king. So the last time behold was held was, was when he was actually announcing who Jesus really was. He's the king of the world. He's the king of, of the kingdom. He is the king of kings. He is the son of man. He's our son of man. And yet the message here is he's specifically concerned with these two humans. And the message might be, if I could take care of them on the cross with my dying breaths, can I take care of you too who come to believe after all this is over? See, Jesus' mother will only appear twice in John's gospel. She appears here and she appears at the wedding of Cana. By the way, the wedding of Cana is the only communion narrative in all of John's gospel. The wedding of Cana, we get the wine reminding us of Jesus, of his cleansing, of his purifying, right? By the way, in both cases, he addresses her as woman. You only see her twice, at Cana and at the cross. That wine at communion he's reminding us of, that's his blood 
drink. It's my blood shed for you. And right now, he's in the process of shedding it. So he's the son of man. He's the king of kings. He's personally involved with these two humans. He, he made his first miracle at a tiny little wedding in a tiny little village that nobody had ever heard of and we still don't know who it was. He's concerned with us on a daily basis, on a second by second basis, on an individual basis. John wants to make sure that we know that. Right even in the middle of the narrative and to continue to stress his humanity, the son of man, to, to talk about his humanity. John includes something else that isn't in the other narratives. After this, when Jesus knew that all was finished, he said in order to fulfill scripture, what? I am thirsty. A jar of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge of the wine on a branch of hyssop and they held it to his mouth. He's what? He's thirsty. Why? He's bleeding to death. When people are suffering from internal bleeding, their blood is going somewhere, they're losing volume. The body gives a thirst in order for you to be able to take in water, maybe hopefully get some more volume in there because it's getting low. So it reminds us that this is a physical act happening. This is real. And it also reminds us too that there wasn't anything particular about his body different from yours and mine. And you know how I know that's true? Because how many crucifixions has John witnessed from there to 75 years later in that empire? He's here to say everyone else who went through this suffered the same way that he did. Again, Jesus willing to take on one of these bodies in order to save everyone else in one of these bodies. John just wants you to know it's real. I saw it, not just with Jesus, but I saw it over and over and over as the empire made examples of all my friends. So it says that when he had received the wine, he said, it is what? It is finished. Then he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So those are the last three words, according to John, is what he says, is what? It is what? finished. I put three periods after it because I just wanted to let you know that came in the middle of a verse. But there should only be one after it or an exclamation point, not a question mark. In the Greek, the Greek word is tetelestai. It is, it is uh, the perfect tense in Greek, which doesn't exist in English, by the way. It's the perfect tense, which means the action has been perfectly fulfilled in the action itself. Isn't that beautiful? It's been perfectly fulfilled. It's perfectly done. Even what it sounds like is the tense that John used in the Greek to tell us die. It is finished. It's completely completed. What is it that's been finished? Well, his ministry, his life, his execution, his mission, all fulfilled. He knows the full well, the significance of his death, does he not? I came here to what? He came to die, didn't he? That's what he said. I must do this. I gotta go to Jerusalem. Even these disciples tried to talk him out of it. This is it. It is what? It is finished. It's fulfilled. It's completed. 
What's one thing that's been fulfilled and completed? Well, for the wages of sin is what? Is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Death finishes this. God was never more faithful to his covenant than when he gave the wages of sin, our wages of sin, to his only son that day on the cross. It is finished. For John as Paul, Jesus was obedient to death. The only way for us to be saved without the cross was if God had changed his law. And if God changes his law, that means he changes his love. And God says, no, I do not what? I don't change. The law, the penalty of the law, the penalty of us shattering it, that now is what? Finished. It's the cross that God uses to ratify his faithfulness to the covenant. By the way, even all messianic prophecy is finished at the cross. There's no more prophecy concerning the Messiah to be fulfilled after this. And it was true down to the minutest detail, the type of garment that was divided, what was wagered for, how the body was handled. Psalm 22 says his clothes would be divided. Isaiah 53 says his grave was made with the wicked. He was crucified between two other insurrectionists, if you will. And his tomb was made of the rich. A rich man, Joseph of Arimathea, gave him his tomb. Passover scriptures. Concerning the Passover lamb, the one whose, whose blood is shed so that Israel could have death pass over them. It says that not one bone was to be broken. Read to the end of this chapter and you'll find that not one of Jesus' bones were what? Were broken. Because of those words right there, he was already dead by the time they came to him to break his legs. And God saw fit to make sure that we would see the Passover lamb in him. But when they came to Jesus, they saw he was already dead. They did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once blood and water came out. I'll spend a lot of time on here, but basically what John is trying to tell you is it's been confirmed by unbiased people who were experts in death. Their witness to you today is what? That he is dead. It is finished. See, there are going to be all kinds of rumors. Going to be rumors about that, that sponge with the wine, that that wine was a powerful sedative, and he only appeared dead. And when they took him down off the cross, they waited for the wine or the sedative to give up, and he then uh, could be claimed to be resurrected. John knows that. But what he's trying to say is, I, explain the empty tomb any way you want. I just want you to know that when we took him off the cross, he was what? He was dead. On the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And as with everything else, it was according to his word. His will. His word. Finished. Simply done, simply complete. See, death brings to close the entire cycle that God has sought to bring before the beginning of time. 
On the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. This death right here brings that entire cycle full circle all the way around. Because the one thing that attaches back to the beginning, if you will, in the beginning was the beginning, right? Back to the beginning is John, is John pointing this out to us. Since it was the day of preparation, the Jews didn't want the bodies left on the cross during the Sabbath, especially because that Sabbath was a great day of great solemnity. Again, it's the first day of Passover or the second day of Passover, depending on the way that you look at it. So they asked Pilate to have the legs of the crucified men broken. What did John all of a sudden want to connect to this. The two uh, absolute signs to, uh, in this entire narrative is first the cross. You can't deny that the cross becomes a central symbol and sign, but what comes next? What is the preparation for? Sabbath. Sabbath is the next one. Sabbath is the next thing that takes us all the way back to make sure that we know that this death brings everything full circle. That when he says it is finished, the great controversy comes absolutely full circle. Because by reminding us that it's the Sabbath, the Sabbath takes us where? It takes us back to the beginning, doesn't it? what he says and so because it was the Jewish day of preparation and the tomb was nearby they what they laid Jesus there see in Genesis the Sabbath comes after the very good pronouncement of the creation of humanity right for five days before that everything was what good but at the end of the sixth day after creating humanity his children his creatures he pronounces it as what? Very good. You want to know how good? Tomorrow it's just you and me, guys. It's just you and me. I'm going to create something that will make sure that you and I will walk and talk together forever. And he creates this day in time, this cathedral in time, if you will, the way Abraham Heschel puts it. The one day where the creator rests with the true fruit of his, parent, of his presence, his, his kids, the Sabbath, face to face, walking and talking. And he pronounces to them that first Sabbath day that, hey guys, this is where life is. You're not going to find life anywhere else. It's right here, you and me, walking and talk, talking. It's only found in this full walking and talking presence. It isn't found anywhere else. Trust me. Trust me. You don't want to go looking anywhere else. On the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. See, after the fall, they draw away, don't they? His children begin to draw away from his presence. As a matter of fact, his presence, just the sound of his presence, does what to them? It frightens them, okay? It frightens them. And, it, and death's process begins because if I'm going to draw away from the one who gives me life, if I'm gonna draw away from the walk and the talk that gives me life, then death has to begin as a process. And death comes for them immediately. Immediately comes for them. God comes to walk with them again, but they're afraid. Where are you? I was afraid because I was what? Because I was naked. God says, ah, oh, who told you you were naked? Who are you listening to? 
Who told you that you had to hide from me? And you may not know it, but in Genesis 3, especially when you get to, to verse 15, the first time that he predicts that there will be a son of man who will come and do something about this is the first messianic prophecy. So right there, right, right, right in the midst of their sin, God says, Adam, Eve, how about I make you a deal? Which, by the way, is what a covenant is. A covenant is a deal between two people. How about I make you a deal? This new way you've chosen is going to be saturated with death and pain. All because of this new nature of selfishness that you've now uh, acquired for yourself. This is not going to be easy. It is going to be hard. Death began to come for you. Death is coming for you. You're going to feel it every day. Even on your best days, there'll be something that will remind you that one day, what's coming? Death is coming. Do I have to say that too loudly in our congregation in the past six years? The number of people that we have had to say goodnight to? It's there, isn't it? You'll feel it. Humanity has this anxiety underneath them. A constant need to protect themselves from the time that they wake up in the morning. And they'll use all the wrong things to protect themselves. You guys will. And God says, here's the deal. How about I give this whole process time so that your free will can cook, so your free will can be uh, uh, developed, if you will, so that your free will can get you to the point to where uh, you can decide who you really are by deciding who I really am. And by the way, in the midst of this darkness and pain, I promise I will continue to reveal myself to you. How about I let a period of time go? And when that time is up, when that fullness of time comes, instead of your death ruling the day, I'll have the final word. I'll die. I'll fulfill it all with my death. What do you say, kids? Of course, our answer back is what? Wait, what? That's what? That's foolishness. You make a covenant of life with us, we smash it, we destroy it, and you keep it? You pay the whole price? You fulfill both sides of the agreement? You take on my curse? You redeem me? Ah, that is crazy. That is foolishness. And God's saying, yeah, I know you feel that way now. Even after I do it, by the way, you're still going to feel that way. Remember, Paul said, the cross is foolishness to the Gentiles, stumbling blocks to the believers. You do all that, God? Why? Sabbath. That I can walk and talk with you. Just me and you. That's why I created you. Created you in my image. Somebody that I could have to love. Somebody who could love me back. 
and somebody who could love everyone else the way that I love them. I showed up to walk and talk with you the day before you fell, and I showed up the day after. And I'll show up walking and talking a few thousand years from now too. Remember John told us, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And then what? And the Word became flesh. And did what? Walked among us. Did he talk too? Well, you bet he did. We have the word, don't we? And we've seen his glory, the glory of a father's only son, full of what? Full of grace, full of truth. The creation, the fall, the recreation, that whole process in the covenant of God is fulfilled where? right here at the cross. Did you mind hearing the story again? Did you hear anything new? Does it matter as long as we hear the story? Let me ask you a question just to ponder. Is it believable? It really isn't, is it? The only reason we can believe it is because we've been given an amount of what? We've been given an amount of grace, an amount of faith, haven't we? He had to provide that for us. It really isn't believable, and we've proved it, by the way. We've proved it when we were Gentiles, and we've proved it when we were Jews. Are you with me? We've proved it because we took the two things. We proclaimed Christ crucified, a stumbling block to believers, right? Because the Jews were the believers. That's the church right there. They're the ones that are supposed to believe this incredible good news about God. He may not have come yet, but they were supposed to believe the prophecies that he was coming, right? And in a lot of ways, Paul said, uh, just the promise is as good as it happening. We live that promise every day, don't we? Second coming hasn't happened, but we live in that promise, and it's as good as if it, 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 it has happened, right? Because we know it's going to. But the first people that had the promise, did they? No. The promise shows up and it becomes a what? A stumbling block. Why? Because it's unbelievable. It's just not believable. And then to the world, it's what? It's foolishness. It's foolishness. Because you don't win in this world by dying. Not in this kingdom. You win by killing somebody else, by making sure you don't die. You make sure that everybody pays their price, pays their debt. That is the only way that you get by in this kingdom. So the world thinks the cross is what? It's foolishness. The church thinks the cross is a stumbling block because the good news cannot be that good. The church goes out and then gives God a reason to save us. I know you said you love us and you've loved us always, but I'm going to become good just in case. Because nobody loves bad people, right? Paul will say it in Romans 5. Somebody might die for a good person, but for a bad person, 
You're not going to find anybody who's going to die. Yet Christ died for us while we were his enemies. So when God came to Adam and Eve to walk and talk with them after they'd fallen, they simply didn't, couldn't believe that he loved them. They insisted on something. They said, let us go away from you and let us become good and then we'll come back because then you'll have a reason to love us. So the church will eventually make the cross an idol, right? We'll make it into a weapon. We'll make it into something that can be something uh, to have some sort of magical authority in order to make sure that this is going to happen. That's what the church does with it. Right? Make the cross an idol. Turn it into something that we can control. Turn it into something that we could use against somebody else. Put it on flags. Put it on posters. Put it on churches. And if you're feeling pretty smug right now, that for the most part, the Adventist church didn't do that, what about the other symbol that day? There was one other thing there that happened that day that may allow us to make into an idol, and that's the Sabbath. What have we done with that? We proclaim that the seal of God is the seventh-day Sabbath, and our special obedience is what makes us special. That's what makes us more likable than anyone else is because we know the right day. We know what to do and what not to do. That the three angels' message, our willingness is, is to just worship on the right day. That is the seal. That we took the love and the beauty of the entire concept of the Sabbath, not only in Eden, but at Gethsemane, at the cross, at the garden, everywhere else, and we took it and we trivialized it, made it into a list of right and wrong, even made it into something that allows you to belong and not belong. Is that what we were supposed to do with the Sabbath? Yeah, I believe that the Sabbath is the seal of God. I really do, the seal of God at the end, the three angels' message, because it's for those who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. But by the way, it isn't keeping the commandments on paper. It isn't knowing that it's Saturday instead of Sunday. It isn't knowing what to do and what not to do. To fulfill and keep the commandments of God, you mean you love God and you love your neighbor as yourself. The love which was given to us on the Sabbath, that's what we spread to the world. Does it happen on a day? Yes. But if all we've got is to give them a, a written description of it, then we're not giving the world the third angel's message, are we? But if we can love as we have been loved, to who? Everybody. But we decided to go back to the tablet, didn't we? Let's go back to the tablet. Because love just doesn't make any sense. It's what? It's foolishness. It's a stumbling block. But guess what? 
Did he know that we would do this with our idols? Did he know that the church in 2,000 years would eventually become what we've become? And guess what? He knew it, and he didn't say, you know what, I'm not gonna do this. <laughs> you know what, if this is what the church is gonna do with my message, then forget it. Father, let's find another way. Let's not, let's not do this. This is ridiculous. No, he knew it, and he went to the cross anyway. Why? Because he did it for you and me. He did it even though that we're idolaters and sinners. In fact, he may have done it in spite of it. We proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and a foolishness to Gentiles. By the way, it wasn't the cross that day. And it wasn't the Sabbath that was coming. It was him. He's the magic word. He is, is the worship object. He is the one that fulfills all. If he could have done it with something else besides the cross, then yeah, right? But it wasn't the cross. If he could have done it on another day, he would have, right? It wasn't the Sabbath. It was him. Is it finished with you and him? It can be. That love that he died for you and for me, 2,000 years ago, he knew today exactly who we would be and he decided to love us anyway. And if he loved us then, he loves us now. It is finished. All our guilt, all our shame, all our righteousness, completely what? Finished. Simply complete. Simply done. And I'm so glad that John rose up after all of this, after 70 years after this happened, to remind us of it today, here. In pandemic-ridden 2021, is there any better message to know, to carry away from here? There is not. Thank you all for hanging in there.